Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be Dr. William Stigall, a pediatric cardiac intensive care physician from Texas, who's going to talk about oral contraceptives, everything except morality. Some fascinating stuff coming. And before we get to our interview, which I'm really excited for, I, I did do a bit of a review of the literature to help kind of set the table. We, we all know about the Catholic Church's teaching on hormonal contraception, the secular, uh, so to speak, Church's teaching on <laughs> contraception, and their divergence. And so we talk about morality a great deal regarding the beginning of life issues, especially related to sexual morality. We wanted to address some of the strictly medical, kind of sociological aspects, um, which we're going to focus on largely in our interview. But I was drawn to a couple recent articles that have come out in the medical literature related to just basic health adverse events because of hormonal contraception. Many things that our listeners may have heard about in the past, you know, especially relationship to breast cancer and increasing the risk of blood clots and strokes and things of that nature. Those are real and those are out there for people to see. Recently, in the European Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Reproductive Biology in January of 2019, they actually did a study about hormonal contraception looking at body composition of muscle strength in young, healthy females in Finland. This was a cross-sectional study. And to cut, cut to the chase, they basically were looking at basically the body structure of these, these women taking oral contraception. They looked using x-ray as well as strength testing. And then the thing that they found out was a statistically significant difference in fat composition and muscle mass. And so the women on oral contraception were actually weaker and fatter Oh, which is something that a lot of women desire, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if that is in the fine print or not, but there was a measurable difference. So women off of the birth control pills were leaner, better muscle mass, better strength, and less body fat. Did they have um, how much less muscle or how much more fat? Well, as far as the, the fat goes, that was about 2%. So you oh, could even that's significant. Do, do a... 2% calculation in, in body weight there. Uh, but this is a per percentage of fat. So for a 100-pound woman, that'd be two more pounds of fat. Mm -hmm. And additionally, in the, the muscles, it was it was broken up into different muscle measurements from grip strength to leg strength to, okay. to whatnot. But there was a uniform change where if you were on it, you had weaker muscles and lower muscle mass. So definitely bad if you're an athlete as a woman. Yeah, and, and you know, you think about kind of the... Uh, poster child of people they're trying to sell this stuff to and it is the young females that frequently they're athletes and this is kind of the the young adulthood and so I think in particular they'd be interested in that and not only does it affect you immediately while you're taking it but long term there was another study that I found related to bone mineral density and this was a meta-analysis that was done in August of 2018 involved was the Kaiser Permanente Health System and it was very interesting because we're, we've quoted this on previous studies and, and what uh, previous shows about the importance of bone health and how, especially after menopause, the lack of estrogen, women frequently have higher risk of osteoporosis and bone fractures compared to men. We know that normally the bones become the strongest in the early 30s and then immediately start to decline and decline until, until the death of a woman. They found in this meta-analysis that women who use hormonal contraception actually did not have the peak that the other women did. Women who never used the pill actually had stronger bones when they're their strongest, and so they had a longer time to decline before they would have adverse events. So, so they're starting out behind the eight ball. They're starting out with a lower peak amount, so they're low... Gosh, th that's just a bad future for them and their bones. Well, and it, it's something that I, I was intrigued by it because it's something that does not necessarily improve after you're off the pill. 
Now, this was one study, a, meta, a meta-analysis, but so many of the consequences that we talk about regularly, you stop taking birth control, your risk of stroke goes back down immediately. Well, the reason that a meta-analysis is more powerful is they're grouping together a number of studies together uh, to try to see how they average out. So it's more powerful than just one study. I mean, because some studies might show a difference, some might not, some might show a big difference, some a little difference. So overall, if there's still a difference, there's something real there. Oh, 100%. And I mean, there's there's many studies regarding things like this. And, and I think one, one other thing, just to kind of set the stage, I'm a family doctor, so I get to see a lot of pediatric patients. And that has been kind of a, a movement in the secular culture, trying with the intent that we all share in and preventing teen pregnancy. However, the way that the secular physicians would recommend doing it would be very different than ways that I would recommend, namely abstinence. And so kind of to help set the stage as well with the social aspect of this is a recent update from the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is the organization that represents over 62,000 pediatricians in America, and many pediatricians are paying dues to this organization. They're kind of the who's who, the, the people who speak on behalf of what is best for pediatric patients. And they decided near the end of 2014 that the first line recommendation for teenagers, um, and I saw somewhere beginning at about the age of 12, was to recommend IUD, long-acting reversible contraception. So from a secular point of view, this stops teen pregnancy in its tracks because you put it in when they're 12, you take it out when they're 22, impossible to get pregnant because it just causes microabortions. So from the point of view of a secular pediatrician, they've succeeded in their goal. However, the, the question that I would like to bring up is what does this do to the, the child's psyche, not only the microabortions, but the actual patient receiving the IUD. When we don't encourage abstinence, what does that do to their psychological and emotional health as well as decision-making, and how are they going to live their lives differently because of this? So that is kind of a, a bit of the literature as well as where we stand sociologically. Now, with the IUDs that are out there now, uh, do they stop a woman from cycling or is she still having a menstrual cycle? So there's different types of IUDs. Some of them have hormones cooked into them, uh, but many in the first line, the copper IUDs do not. And so those would not make a woman stop cycling, although the ones with the hormones can alter the menstrual cycle. And so they could have the effects that the first study you mentioned could have on, uh, you know, less muscle, more fat. Yep, I would, I would anticipate very similar results in that regard. And if we went through the, the sociology, uh, like you were talking before, if, you know, this young girl thinks, oh, good, I can have intercourse whenever I want to, no effects, are you setting this person up for success in relationships later on in life? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, one, one of the things that I think Catholic and Christian physicians have said for a long time is, you know, what about the girls that are, you know, being coerced into this? you know, the people that are victims of, of sexual and physical abuse. And then even apart from that, the, the folks that are doing this voluntarily, sometimes, you know, with their parents having full knowledge of it, what kind of, what kind of anticipation are you setting up for them about how you're supposed to live your life? I mean, we're supposed to grow in virtue over time, and this does not lead to better behavior necessarily. Oh, no, absolutely not. I couldn't imagine putting something like that into the the body of my children. I mean, we don't want to put uh, different pollutants into the atmosphere, into the into the waters. Why would we put something foreign like this and leave it there for years and and, and not know exactly how it's going to affect our children? So there's there's a lot of reasons from a medical standpoint as well as an ethical standpoint to be opposed to contraception of all sorts. But in our interview coming up, we're really excited to discuss specifically the hormonal aspects of birth control, how they relate to human behavior. But first, before we get to our interview, I'm excited to hear about our medical trivia question. You know, we've covered so much about contraception uh, on the show since it uh, began a year and a half ago. I had to find another, another angle on this. So I did some research online, and the United Nations has collected worldwide data on how women who are married uh, space their babies. 
And so they have data from all the continents, and it's remarkable how different the continents are. And you know, if you guess which continent is different than the rest, it's Africa. There, but there has been a great infiltration of artificial methods of preventing uh, conception. So my question is simply this. What percent of married women of childbearing potential worldwide do not use artificial contraception according to the United Nations? So, so the question is, do you think it's more than half of women use artificial contraception or less than half? So my question is, what percent do not use it? Do you think less than half or more than half? And what's the number you'd give it? You can think about that while we take a break before we come to our special guest appearing on Dr. Doctor, which is recording here at the studios of Redeemer Radio in Northeast Indiana in the little town of Fort Wayne. And welcome back to the second segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor, which brings us to our guest, Dr. William Stigall, who is practicing pediatric cardiology critical care sick babies with problem hearts or sick children with problem hearts. He does that in Fort Worth, Texas at the Cook Children's Medical Center. He not only does critical care medicine for children, but he's also a bioethicist and even teaches bioethics at the Catholic University of Dallas. He was married in 2001 and now has three boys, Peter, James, and John. He loves outdoor activities. William, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, and so we're going to talk about contraceptive hormones or hormonal contraceptives, everything except the morality of them. How dare we do this? A bioethicist, we're not going to talk about morality because there's so much else that's interesting. So, William, in this age, when many voices out there are saying that male and female, it's just a a social construct, there's not any real differences, you're saying here that estrogen and other hormones do make a real difference. Why is this important to know? Well, I don't think it's just me uh, saying this. I think it's about 500 million years of animal evolution (laughs) uh, saying it. Uh, And that's kind of what I do at the University of Dallas in my bioethics um, class. Uh, The way I structure it is I ask, you know, what what do the data show? What's an evidence-based bioethics? And I think when you take that approach, you can really see that nature is teaching us all the time. And we used to call that natural law. Um, but now we can just call it, what are, we, what are we supposed to learn by looking at ourselves and looking at our environment, looking at the environment we live? And when you do that, then you can see that there's, there are proper paths. And then you can introduce morality on top of all that. And so I think, I think science, nature has plenty to offer to us that we don't have to just rely on the good book or you know, revealed revelation or what our uh, Catholic school teaching has, has taught us. Uh, nature is also a very good teacher. A phrase that I've heard from Dr. Ray Gurendi, he's a Catholic psychologist who's been on Catholic radio. He's adopted children of multiple races, including African-Americans. So he likes to refer to the females in his family as estrogen Americans. So what is it about estrogen that makes girls and women different than boys and men? Well, estrogen has been linked to femaleness, femininity, uh, and female sex, uh, I mean, honestly, for 400 million years. It's estrogen um, is related in almost every animal species that we know of to female, the female sex of those animal species and not in the, the male sex. So there really is a fundamental basic hormonal difference between males and females. And this starts, you know, from the very beginning, the, the behavior that's associated with female sex hormones and male sex hormones also is, is very different uh, across species. Uh, these the sexes the sexes act differently and including um, and including you know, homo sapiens uh, so I think it's 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 reasonable to, to call them estrogen Americans it really, really it's just estrogenized human beings that, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. do do operate in, in, in very different ways uh, and however you want to peel it back however deep you want to dig you're going to find that at, at every level um, and there's biological reasons for this, there's psychological reasons for this, there's sociological reasons for this, and all these things are kind of built on top of each other. And I think it does really go back to just how fundamental estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone are to forming the kinds of beings we are. And, and these things start uh, from the absolute you know, very beginnings. Just kind of as a overarching idea, where do we see the estrogen working most in the body, apart from 
you know, the obvious physical things. My, my children know people with longer hair have more estrogen than people with shorter <laughs> hair. But apart from the physical changes related to estrogen, where else in the body do we see it work? So there are sex differences in every organ in the body. Um, your uh, female liver is a different kind of organ than a male liver. Um, and pharmaceutical companies know this, right? We, we know that certain drugs work in certain races better. We know they work on certain sexes better. And we then forget all that when we talk about the politics of, of gender. Um, but the biological differences are, are, are there in every hormone, and, and some more than others. The, the differences between the sexes are a, it's a bimodal distribution where most of the female sex behaves, acts, looks different than most of the male sex, but there's there's overlap between those two things. So it's not to say that uh, there aren't uh, more feminine males and more masculine females, but it is to say that there are real differences there. Uh, the brain is probably the, the organ that has the most differences, um, and however you however you want to call difference, you, you, can, you can find them on, on every level. Uh, at the macro level, uh, female brains and male brains are different sides, different sides of their bodies. And then not just the whole brain, but different parts of the brain of the, of the male and female are different sizes relative to the total brain size. Uh, female brains and male brains are connected differently. So neuronal connections, this is called uh, neuronal co connectivity studies, look at how your neurons are kind of wired together. And what they found is that male brains and female brains are wired together together differently. Male brains are wired much more front to back and have uh, not near as much crossover left to right. Female brains have a lot more crossover left to right. Now, uh, William, actually, I've heard people talk about the male and female brain, like the female brain is like spaghetti. Everything runs into everything else. And the male brain is a bunch of boxes, some of which are empty. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about the empty box theory. Uh, there are definitely... Uh, Actually, it's mostly separate boxes that men keep things yeah. compartmentalized. Um, so, yes. Um, so one of, the, one of the differences is, honestly, is, is in the frontal lobe, which um, it's, it's funny when you read these studies about the differences in the male and female brains, they sort of lump all these differences together, you know, that the uh, male brains have, uh, have, are larger in areas uh, devoted to computational thinking. Female brains are devoted to have larger areas devoted to... Um, you know, integral thinking, right? And they act like those things are the same, you know, um, meaning, you know, you can have integral thinking or you can have calculation thinking. <laughs> but one of the real differences is in the is in the frontal lobe, which is basically where we become human beings. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it, it, it's how you uh, think about the world around you. It's how you uh, anticipate problems with how you're acting. Female brains also have uh, uh, higher or, or larger and have more connection in areas where you think about other people's thoughts of you. So hmm. the idea to like connect with somebody and, and, and this is found across, you know, uh, across race, across nation, across social status. So when we, if we're going to talk about contraceptive hormones, I think first we need to review on what do hormones normally do in a woman, particularly during her monthly menstrual cycle? Well, uh, so as a review, uh, remember there's two parts of the, the female uh, menstrual cycle, uh, the follicular phase and the luteal phase. The follicular phase is governed by um, the pituitary hormone, uh, FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. Uh, FSH is, is related to a uh, secondary hormone than estrogen. And so in the follicular phase, uh, increased levels of FSH cause increased levels of estrogen. As estrogen uh, builds up, then the uterine lining uh, is, is starting to build up in anticipation of pregnancy. Uh, so the, the, the first half of a menstrual cycle is estrogen-related and is related to fertility. And when you say yeah, follicular phase, that's getting one egg fully mature, ready to be released. Yes. Turning it into a follicle. Yes. So then at the, the LH surge, it happens mid-cycle, uh, and this is when the uh, follicle ejects an egg. And so now you have a... Uh, a, an egg uh, waiting to receive sperm to, to conceive, right? So the second half of the menstrual cycle uh, is the luteal phase. So luteal phase uh, is governed by LH, and it, uh, it then governs progesterone. So the first half of the cycle is the follicular phase governed by increasing levels of estrogen. The second half of the menstrual cycle is the luteal phase governed by increasing and high levels of progesterone. So progesterone in this, this, this phase anticipates pregnancy. So, so pro-gestation. It helps gestation of a baby. That's why it's called progesterone. 
Exactly right. And so women with um, threatened, threatened, uh, you know, threatened miscarriages, women who are, are having difficulty conceiving will often go in, you know, for progesterone shots. Yes. Right? The idea is that progesterone helps you keep on, keep a hold of a conceived uh, embryo. So the first half estrogen, the second half progesterone, the first half fertility, the second half pregnancy. So, and then, so that's what oral, oral contraception does, right? That uh, all oral contraceptives uh, are at some level progesterone plus or minus estrogen. And the idea is that you prevent this cyclical cycling of estrogen and follicle release by blunting that with progesterone. So in effect, what contraception does is it creates pseudo-pregnant states uh, to prevent the cycling of, of estrogen. And so that eggs aren't released. Right. Typically. And so you you see a lot of this lack of the cyclic pattern you see a lot of causes uh, that causes a lot of problems, rather. What are some of the things that you, you have noticed, especially in your review of the literature, that is a result of this lack of cyclic pattern? Well, I think that's a, actually a really good point. That Actually, I haven't noticed anything. This is a good point to make, that um, men and women's behavior are very different when it comes to noticing the other sex. Um, so, uh, <laughs> not a surprise so to our is, female listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what happens is uh, I'm teaching a class on bioethics, and and we start talking about uh, you know the, the the moral implications of oral contraception, and then I start looking into the, you know the biology and the psychology and the sociology of oral contraception, and there's a ton of literature out there that I've never heard of. And it was not intuitive, in, intuitive to me. Um, and, and, and it basically shows that there are very real behavioral differences between fertile women and pregnant women, fertile women and pseudo-pregnant women, or women on, on oral contraception. Tell the data us more. Are, though, that men, the, the, the data are that men are not very good at noticing this uh, consciously. So women, though, are much more aware than we are, but much of the behavioral differences are actually subconscious. So Across the animal kingdom, uh, fertile animals and pregnant animals act differently. Uh, fertile mice uh, prefer the smell of uh, mice they're related to. Uh, to to um, um, excuse me, fertile oh. mice prefer the smell of mice they are not related to to be around. When a mouse gets pregnant, uh, she then groups herself with other mice that have similar smells to herself. Hmm. So. And, and, and this occurs in, in some form or fashion. This, this occurs across the animal kingdom um, that pregnant behavior is different than than fertile behavior. And so there's this wealth of literature now that that basically shows that this also occurs in human beings, but we're not really aware of it consciously, certainly. And even when you're sort of aware of the data, you're 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 not completely consciously aware of this. How how does um, that so, happen on a subconscious level? Well, I think, you know, I mean, most of what you do, you're not conscious of, right? I mean, when you walk and chew gum at the same time, you're not having to think about walking and chewing gum. Uh, you think about wherever you're going and, and, you're, and, and you're, you are at some level making a choice to walk and you're at some level you're making a choice to chew gum, but you're not consciously aware of these choices of walking and, and chewing gum at the same time. And so in the same way, uh, so much of what we do is automated, uh, you know, habitual. And then so much we do is chosen on... On, on, on sort of a meta level, uh, that we're choosing the desired outcome of the thing and how everything stacks in between there, we're not as explicitly conscious of for those things. You know, for example, uh, you know, when, you, um, when you're busy and harried and you have somewhere to go, you're not really choosing to use the tone of voice that conveys those things. You just are busy and harried and conveying that through your, through your tone of voice. Uh, so, I, so I think there's, there's, there's a way of, of, of behaving that can be measured that you may not be completely aware of. So we're going to take a break now. We're going to come back with more. William is going to talk to us about uh, some fascinating ways that men and women act differently toward each other when moral contraceptives are on board. We'll be right back with more on Dr. Doctor. And we're back on Dr. Doctor talking about changes that happen to women who are taking oral contraceptives versus those who are cycling normally. And one of the things that I wanted to, to discuss was the t-shirt study that many of our listeners may have been familiar with. This is something that has recently been getting more attention on the internet. Um, William, could you describe that for some of our listeners and 
why that might be, why that might reveal something about the the benefits of the natural human cycle. So yeah, this uh, the study is. Uh, kind of been resurrected. Uh, and actually, it's an old study. It was published first in 1995. You know, I came across of it 10 years ago when I started, you know, looking into this, this kind of thing. But now it's, uh, for various reasons, it, it's sort of come back into the public profile. So it's a study of, uh, of 100 men and women. They, uh, half women, half men. Uh, everyone in the study, uh, of course, it's a, all these studies are college-age students. Uh, you can get them to do anything for a buck or, <laughs> you know, or pizza. pizza. Uh, <laughs> so they recruit them all. They then get blood tests from all of them, getting their MHC profiles uh, drawn. So their major histocompatibility complex profiles. Uh, these are the uh, what makes you um, related to your parents' profiles. Remember, um, when you get organ donation, uh, MHC profiles that are similar are a good match. MHC profiles that are dissimilar are not a good match, right? So it's how we're sort of biologically related. So they get MHC profiles drawn uh, to, to basically figure out how related people are at you know, kind of a fundamental level. So then um, they have the men uh, wear a T-shirt uh, two nights in a row, and they're told, they told the men to live as odor-neutral as possible. Uh, so they gave the men these, uh, this is difficult, you can imagine. Yes, uh, yes. But they gave the men uh, perfume-free perfume detergent. Uh, they're given a list of food and activities to, you know, to avoid. So you know, no smoking, no drinking, uh, no deodorants, no colognes, no sex, no sleeping with anyone else in their bed. Uh, so then after two nights of wearing these shirts, the men returned the shirts, and each of the women then was given six shirts. Uh, so three from men who had similar MHC profiles uh, to them and three with dissimilar MHC uh, profiles. And then the women are asked you know, to rate these, these shirts on, uh, on smell, on sexiness, pleasantness, um, and uh, intensity of smell. And then they looked at how these various combinations of uh, relatedness played out. They also then um, had the women do these ratings uh, two weeks after their menstrual cycle. And so um, oh, know, half the women were on oral contraceptive. And so two weeks after their menstrual cycle, uh, they're still on oral contraceptive and they're still, oh. you know, have an elevated uh, progesterone level. The women who are not on oral contraceptives, two weeks after their menstrual cycle, that, that hits mid-cycle. That's their luteal phase. That's the height of their estrogen uh, sort of uh, dominance in their, in, their, uh, in their hormonal cycles. So half the women then have high estrogen, half the women have high, have high progesterone. So a number of interesting findings came out uh, from this study. So what they found was that fertile women preferred the smell of men with dissimilar MHC profiles much more than they preferred the smell of men with similar MHC profiles. And biologically, this sort of, this sort of makes sense that fertile women prefer men with dissimilar MHC profiles who are more unrelated to them. And that's uh, and what we found you know, with the mice too, right? That's exactly right. Uh, so, and, and this, this has real evolutionary um, uh, import that, you know, uh, men and women who have similar MHC profiles are, are, are more related than not. And so we know that uh, men and women with similar MHC profiles uh, have trouble conceiving. They have, uh, they have increased miscarriage rates. Uh, they have decreased efficacy of uh, in vitro fertilization. So this is a, a fertility problem um, Shallower for gene men point. and women who are more related, right? And, and that makes sense. They're, they're, they're consanguine, consanguinous at some level. So fertile women prefer the smell of dissimilar MHC-profiled men. Women on oral contraception, though, preferred the smell of similar MHC-profile men. And it's not just prefer. It's they think it's pleasant. They think it's sexy. So they are attracted to the smell of men who have similar MHC profiles. And this also sort of makes sense from an evolutionary perspective when you're, uh, you know, uh, females that are pregnant prefer to staying around, uh, you know, uh, family members, right, or, or, or genetically similar animals. Which the mice uh, they're also tribe, showed. They're in their animal, which the mice also showed. Um, the women in the study are not aware of this, right? They're not aware uh, that they're, they're smelling someone that smells like home, and that's what they're calling <laughs> sexy, right? They're just asking them which ones are sexy, and, and what they found was very clearly that there's a very real difference, and in fact, it's an opposite effect, that women who are fertile prefer dissimilar MHC profile men's smells. Women who are non-fertile uh, prefer similar MHC profile smells. They ran the study again later asking the men, so women to wear t-shirts and men to smell. And what they found was that men were barely able to smell a difference. Uh, 
there was a uh, there was a statistically distinct that men men could smell a difference that, that between fertile and non-fertile smells. They didn't know which ones was which. Uh, it was not clinically significant, um, and and they then they couldn't tell you they could smell a difference. So they couldn't tell you that the fertile one was actually more attractive. So men are not able to smell the differences really well at all. And then even then, we we don't really know by our smell uh, who's fertile and who's not. So in other words, if if a man is having trouble attracting a certain woman he likes, he might not just smell right to her. Well, so th- this is a really interesting issue. This gets a little into um, so this is this is decent data, you know, the, and, yes. and the people are doing this have been doing it for 20, 20, 25 years. There are implications in this though um, that I've not found good data for, but uh, or in in these articles, people do mention this idea that there is really something to this sort of love at first sight concept. Mm. Um, that um, and so this is a concept, right? That's been around since we've been writing stories about love. That there is something about uh, an intense attraction between people that that you know that transcends race and culture, and everyone's got this story. Um, there also, in a cross culture, is this idea of, of, of sort of physical attractiveness and physical fit between people. And one of the putative uh, mechanisms for this may be MHC profiles, because you know, so why do we kiss? You know why do why do why do why <laughs> my do, kids you know, ask hairless... that all the time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, ooh, you know, you know, some evolutionary biologists call it hairless apes, right? And why do hairless apes put their lips together uh, to determine if we're attracted to somebody or not? And one of the one of the, the mechanisms that may that maybe be happening here is that you're sharing a lot of genetic information when you do that, um, and that 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 you really are attracted to somebody by the way they smell. And so if you're up close into somebody's uh, you know, personal space, you're going to be able to sense that more or less. And if you're kissing, um, then you, you really are swapping out all of these uh, genetic markers. That is fascinating. Wow. Now, now, you talk about how this might play into something called mate retention behaviors. Can you explain that? So mate retention behaviors, they occur in any relationship. And so the idea, and this is, again, this is not just Homo sapiens. This is this is all uh, uh, higher higher animals have different degrees of this. Especially if they're um, if uh, the more um, the less promiscuous they are, the more monogamous uh, species are, the more mate retention behaviors they have. So the idea is that a mate's expensive. Uh, so especially for monogamous species, that if you're a bird and you need to have one of the mates sitting on the eggs the entire time, you need to be able to rely on your other your other mate to come bring you food while you're protecting the eggs, right? And so in birds, birds are, are you know, the vast majority of bird species are monogamous uh, and probably for this reason. Uh, so what, what animals who are, um, who have matedness for life especially do uh, is that they guard their mate. So they, you know, this can be virtuous. Uh, they guard their mate and they protect them. They watch out for them, right? Uh, they make sure that they're supposed to be where they're, where they're at, where they're supposed to be. But it also means, um, especially in, in higher animals and, and human beings, that there's sort of negative aspects to mate retention behavior, meaning that you will protect your mate from, from being seen by, uh, by rivals, uh, that you'll, uh, you'll protect your status in the, in the mate relationship uh, by not letting them go out, by calling them to make sure that they're, that's where they're supposed to be, uh, that kind of thing, or by, in, in human beings, mate retention behavior can also be uh, forms of guarding like, uh, you know, uh, deprecating other potential mates. You know, so when an attractive man comes around, you say nasty things about that man to your, to your mate so that your, your, your wife, your spouse uh, isn't, uh, isn't as attracted to so them. So in other words, there are appropriate mate retention behaviors, and then there's going too far. So are some... Right. Okay, very good. And can, what, what changes do you see in relation to oral contraception? So... Um, among all couples, men mate guard more than women do. Uh, so this is a this is a, a well-known uh, psychological uh, fact that uh, in in relationships, men are much more aware of guarding their mate than, than females are. But women guard as well. And and so there's there's self-directed mate retention behavior, and then there's partner-directed mate retention behavior. So a self-directed mate retention behavior from a woman would be I'm trying to look attractive for my mate. My mate likes long hair. I'm going to draw dry you know, make my hair long. So what we find then is in couples, men mate guard more than women do, but they, everyone does it. We also now know that in relationships where the woman is taking oral contraceptives, women in that those relationships have increased mate retention behavior, both self and partner directed, and the men do as well. In fact, the women in, who are taking oral contraceptives mate guard more than men in relationships with non-contracepting women. Mm. And it's almost double. 
the studies that sort of look at this are kind of, you know, it depends on what you call mate retention behavior and, and how you measure it. But in general, a male in a, in a relationship with a woman who's contracepting is going to have about twice as much mate retention behavior uh, as a male in a non uh, in a non-contracepting relationship. And what are the consequences for a relationship when those mate retention behaviors go up for both the man and the woman? Right. I mean, so I mean, you can imagine what they would be, right? So um, as these things escalate, then there's just more and more time spent attending to the other mate's behavior, right? So you're, you're more worried about what your mate's doing. You're more uh, concerned about who they spend their time with. And, and as you can imagine, uh, that probably doesn't build a relationship of trust. Uh, and, and, and the relationships of trust then um, uh, are, are obviously essential for, you know, long-term um, success at, the, at these mates, uh, at, these, uh, at these relationships. And so I think it, it creates a, a milieu whereby there isn't the appropriate affection, the appropriate expression of, of, of a love that's not just based on physical attraction, right? That's, that's based on, I want the good for your sake not for my own sake. Oh boy, do we ever see that in dysfunctional relationships. William, this is fascinating. We're going to take one more break and be back with some more fascinating information here on Dr. Doctor. And here we are with the final segment of this show on Dr. Doctor, which means the answer to the medical trivia question. And the question was fairly straightforward. What percent of married women throughout the world who have childbearing potential do not use artificial contraception according to the United Nations. Do you think it's more than half, less than half? What's the number you'd give it? I was actually quite shocked at the uh, infiltration across societies of artificial contraception. So the, the numbers from the United Nations show 39% of childbearing women who are married do not use artificial contraception, meaning 61% do. And, and the number one form of this is sterilization of women. Second most common is actually implanted intrauterine devices. That's 14% of women worldwide. And oral contraceptives that we've been talking about, that's about 9% worldwide. So fascinating numbers, uh, somewhat sad. But true. And we're talking about some of the sad but true consequences of using the hormonal methods. Right. And, William, you were talking about these mate retention behaviors. What are some of the negative, negative consequences of those actions? So I think, you know, fundamentally, um, you need to ask, you know, why? why? Why do men mate guard more than women? And why do men partnered with women who are contracepting, why would they mate guard even more? I think it gets back to what is what does oral contraception do to you biologically? Well, it creates a pseudo-pregnant state. So men who are partnered with women biologically are sensing that they are partnered with a pregnant female. They don't know this consciously, um, but this is the hormonal reaction that they have. And so it makes sense to mate guard your pregnant mate, especially in, in, a, in a species such as ours where it, it takes biparental care to raise up young to adulthood. A lot of, a lot of time energy is invested in in your mate. And so women who are sensed as pregnant are going to be treated differently uh, by, the, by their mates. But the problem with that is, is that going around guarding your mate all the time doesn't allow you to trust her in the way that you ought to trust her, uh, want the good for her sake, not just your own sake. Um, and again, this is, this is not completely isolated to homo sapiens. This is, this is across the, the animal kingdom. Um, one of the more interesting studies that have, that have come out about, you know, what happens when you when you change up the hormonal milieu of, of, of primates uh, actually came out in the in the testing phase for Depo-Provera. So Depo, I think, is you know it's it's off the it's off the market now. It's been replaced by um, more longer acting uh, contraceptives. Uh, but in uh, 1982, there was a study on Depo before it was introduced in the American market and looked at the effects of Depo in uh, in a monkey species called the macaque. Uh, so macaques are an old world monkey. Uh, they're they're not as closely related to Homo sapiens as as chimpanzees are, uh, but they're pretty close. And, and macaques have a similar um, estrogen progesterone cycle as as human beings do, meaning they have uh, uh, cyclic fertility and their behavior uh, changes a bit between uh, their estrogen phase and their and their progesterone phase. So they had an isolated macaque um, colony uh, down the Caribbean. 
uh, and it was a, a typical macaque colony. So it had one alpha male kind of ruled the brood. Um, and in macaque colonies, you have the one alpha and uh, you have an alpha level of females. Uh, so he had in this particular colony, there were three alpha females. And then there was, uh, you know, six or a dozen more other uh, females and young males. Uh, and the young females were sort of the beta females. So in a typical macaque colony, you know, you have the alphas ruling things. The, the alpha male uh, exerts his dominance in a lot of ways. Um, you know, he's, he's one of the bigger ones. He, he, he gets the food for everybody. He eats first, that kind of thing. And then one of the ways he does it is by establishing dominance is by um, sexual matings. So the alpha male and the alpha females uh, have a lot more mating than the alpha male and all the betas, but the alpha male mates with everybody. So uh, the study then looked at what would Depo Rivera do to this, this, this colony. So they, it's a staged set of experiments, uh, and they, they inject um, um, the Depo Rivera, which is a long-acting contraceptive that lasts about three months. Uh, it's a long-acting progesterone into various females, and they watch how the, the colony reacts to it. So the first one, they inject Depo Bavera into two of the three alpha females and then another of the beta females. And so then they, then they see what happens. What they found was that uh, after they injected the Depo into the alpha females, uh, the, the alpha male no longer mated with them. So he, he didn't groom them as much. He didn't interact with them as much. Uh, and he basically treated them as he would uh, the beta females. He then replaced those beta, these alpha females with two betas who were not injected. So two new betas became his, his primary consort. So, um, and, he, and he went along uh, uh, in the sort of typical way of multiple matings a day uh, with, with, these, uh, with these new alphas. They waited three months uh, to watch uh, the colony's reaction to this, and then they injected again three different females. One of the things they also noticed, though, is that the alpha females who were injected behaved very differently when injected than they did uh, previously. So they had um, less cooperative behavior. Uh, They're more antagonistic to other, the other females in the group. They're more antagonistic to the younger males. So they noticed sort of there was this discord in, in the colony. So they let the Depo Rivera sort of run out, uh, and then they do the second experiment. And the second experiment now is they inject it into the old alpha that was not injected the first time, and they inject it into two more betas. Uh, and then again, what happens is he cycles them out. So they do this a couple times where every time they inject, the alpha male basically starts rejecting the Depo Provera injected females. So then the last experiment, they, they do this over uh, you know about a year. The last experiment uh, involves uh, the injection of Depo Provera into all the females. Uh, and then what I love, what I love about these studies is these are very dry. Right? These, are, these are scientific journals, and they have to somehow describe what happens next. Uh, and so they, uh, the authors are, say that the macaques, uh, the alpha male macaques' behavior became disturbed and confused. And, uh, and so they say that uh, he had no, he had no sex. He had no sex for eleven days which is highly unusual for the macaques. So macaques are very social primates. Uh, I mean, on average, he's having sex multiple times a day with his alpha females. He has sex on average every several days with, with the betas. And so sex is one of the ways that, you know, that this colony sort of has its social, uh, social hierarchy created. And so there's no sex for 11 days, uh, which is really unusual for these macaques. Even more unusual is on day 12, the, the scientists note that the, uh, the macaque male uh, he had increased his agitation. He had started masturbating. And then he chases down a uh, female uh, who is not receptive to him, which is also sort of unusual that macaque females are generally receptive to macaque males, uh, the alpha male especially. So she's not being receptive. She's running away. He chases her down and and, and gets on top of her and mates with her. You know, it's if, if this was human beings, we'd call that rape. Yes. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's macaques, and so I don't know that rape is possible among among lower primates. Um, but that's really unusual behavior, whatever it is. It's really disturbing behavior that, that the female is trying to get away and the male is, is, is on top of her, right? So then he doesn't do any sexual activity other than masturbating for weeks, weeks after that. And the, and, the, and the colony really is disturbed at this point, right? Because, you know, this, this, the social relationships are very much tied into the grooming and the eating together and, and, the, and the mating. Um, and then you know, again, it's sort of dry commentary by the by the authors of the paper. But basically, you could just, you could see the the zen that comes over the over the colony at the end of three months. That everything sort of returns to normal, and the the old three alphas then become the new three alphas, and all is back to to baseline. And it's because the Depo Provera had been wiped out of their system. 
Sounds Nonetheless, like a, a Dipper soap Vera opera. Is, you know, released onto the <clears throat> United States Homo sapiens market, and uh, nevertheless, and no one knows this. Man, no, that is that is really incredible. It makes you wonder if it's working because it prevents ovulation, or it makes people less attractive. I hadn't All thought of that. Yes. So, if you had to um, catalog the different behaviors that are engendered by use of OCPs in marital relationships. Are there any positive behaviors? And if not, what are all the negative behaviors or negative consequences? Are there any positive behaviors? Well, I think, I think you'd have to say, you know, are, so are there any positive behaviors for inducing a pseudo-pregnant state? And so the idea that um, women who are pregnant take less risks. They take less risk on, on however you want to measure this, you know, whether they go out late at night, whether they, uh, you know, um, whether, how, how they dress, how they act. Men who are mated with women who are pregnant or pseudo-pregnant also change their behavior. And so, so in that regard, maybe, right, that, that mm-hmm. it's, it's good for people to, to think differently while, while pregnant. The real issue, though, is that normally cycling women will go up and down. Right. So normally cycling women will have changes in their behavior that when fertile, they're going to be attracted to a certain kind of male phenotype. And when non-fertile, they're going to be attracted to a different kind of male phenotype. And so the idea then is that women over time will grow, will grow to learn them this about themselves. Right. That, that I behave differently depending on what my hormonal structure is. And men then are um, much more hormonally static. And so the, the idea then that that men have to understand that this behavior does change around me and it's the other's behavior. I need to adjust my behavior on that. And so I think there's a reason why women cycle, right? There's a reason why we're the kind of species uh, that, that requires long-term commitments to raise our young, but we do it in such a milieu that it's it's changing every two weeks, right? Uh, That there's some good that comes from this. Um, and And I think that's what we're supposed to, that's what we're supposed to do. And I think that's one of the real problems with, artificially creating pseudo-pregnant states is that you you really do muck with evolutionary biology that that's that's hundreds of millions of years old and the idea that that's not going to affect our social structure is just absurd and Uh, and so i think i think we're built for this kind of cycling behavior and when we when it doesn't happen that's very disruptive and you mentioned offline that this could influence the number of extramarital affairs that people have so we also know so you know why do women cheat um, there's, there's, a, there's a whole social science data, uh, you know, science on this of looking at that. And one of the things that we that, that we found is that women have higher rates of extramarital affairs when they're coupled with men who have similar profiles, MHC profiles to them, um, when they are coupled to men that they don't think are attractive. And both of those things can happen when women are taking oral contraceptives, right? So if you're if you meet somebody yes. while taking the pill, you're going to be attracted to them in a different way than you would be if you met them while you were fertile. And when you get off the pill, then new you know you see them in a different light. Again, none of this is conscious, <laughs> um, but you see them in a different light. And I think honestly, I've I've had friends um, that I I think this is what the seven year itch is. Um, you know, this is the idea. You know, why do why do couples sort of get through the first part of marriage? and then fall apart. I, I, I know of at least a couple of examples in my own personal life of friends who met while contracepting, then they decided they want to have babies. And when the woman got off the pill, their attraction was completely different. Um, and I, you know, I don't have hard science to, to support that, but the, that looks to me like one of the things that's happening is when a woman, and we do have data for that. We, we do have data that um, couples self-mated, self-rated measurements of satisfaction with a relationship depends on their contraceptive status currently and how it is related to their contraceptive status when they met. Meaning if you meet your, if you meet your mate off the pill, then you're going to have a higher chances of having self-rated measurements of relationship satisfaction seven years down the line. If you're still not contracepting, if you were contracepting when you met, then your likelihood is decreased of having self-rated measurements of relationship satisfaction. If you change. So if you go from the pill to no pill, then the women in those relationships are less attractive. They're uh, less attractive to their men. That is fascinating and very practical. I think. Well, there's a. I think there's so much that you have unpacked and so much that could be thought about relating to this. And I, my favorite thing that you said was, 
we are crazy to think that messing with this science that is so old is not going to affect our social structure, and we've got the monkeys to prove it. William, so. <laughs> is there any website or a resource that you can recommend for listeners who want to learn more? You know, I mean, there's there's no book on this yet. It's it's, it's all out there. Um, When's it know, coming out? <laughs> <laughs> we'll promote it for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really, honestly, does need to be written. Um, this is all sort of buried in social science social science research, and, um, and 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 even the people doing the social science research are not on your show. Right there, uh, there, there's a uh, they could there's be. a paragraph at the beginning of every one of these articles that basically says we're not saying contraception is wrong, <laughs> we're just saying it drastically affects blah blah blah, blah right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think you know the macaque study is out there. Um, there there are reviews of these studies that have sort of uh, collected them together, but there's no one who's really linked the the the, the science and the philosophy, um, and that's a problem. You know, obviously uh, we used to call that natural law looking at the world around us to tell us how we're supposed to behave. But we've lost that about 200 years ago. Well, I think you're the one to do it. But it's time to (laughs) sign off from another episode. Thank you, William, for being with us today. It's been a joy. And thank you for all our listeners to listen to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio and heard worldwide on the EWTN Worldwide Catholic global radio network please share the good news of dr doctor with a friend invite them to listen to any missed episodes on itunes or google play podcasts and be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with dr doctor where we will be discussing the hospital competition act a bill that was authored by congressman jim banks this is dr tom mcgovern and dr andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of dr doctor Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.